You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Archie Cornish from Wadham College, University of Oxford. His paper was entitled in Neighbourhood of Kingdom, personifying Ireland and her rivers in 16th century England. This paper asks two questions, one general and one particular, and attempts to connect the answers. First, what does it mean to personify a river? Most considerations of personification as such concentrate on the embodiment of abstract concepts like envy or beauty. Yet literary history offers plentiful examples of natural phenomena personified, whereby an entity with a spatial but non-human form, such as a mountain or a river, becomes a gendered body. Secondly, what did it mean for an English poet like Edmund Spencer to personify the rivers of Ireland and Ireland herself at the end of the 16th century? The fourth book of the Fairy Queen, Spencer's allegorical epic romance, culminates in a famous description of the marriage of the rivers Thames and Medway, where the great rivers of the world, as well as those of England and Ireland, are joined in neighbourhood of kingdom in the hall of the sea god Proteus. When Book 4 was published in 1596, Irish rebellion against English imperial rule was underway. Spencer's existence at Kilcolman on the Munster plantation, where he had lived since the late 1580s, was threatened by the insurrections led by Hugh O'Neill. The fictive neighbourhood exists against a background of contemporary conflict. Spencer's debts to Ireland have been well attested, and more recently critics have traced the complex relations between his participation in the English imperial project and his poetic enterprise. Personification, I will argue here, has its part to play. The wedding of the Thames and the Medway has an enviable guest list. Neptune and all other sea gods are present as are famous rivers such as the Nile and Amazon. Between these and a catalogue of water nymphs come the rivers of the British Isles. Forty-five English rivers are named, including the Tame, which is the bit of the Thames further up river, personified as the dignified father of the bridegroom, quote, his beard all grey, dewed with silver drops that trickled down all way. And then, nay thence the Irish rivers absent were, Sith no less famous than the rest they be, and join in neighbourhood of kingdom near, why should, they not like, why should they not likewise in love agree, and joy likewise this solemn day to see? Before we consider the politics of the rhetorical question on which this stanza pivots, it's worth wondering what we are supposed to imagine. In the next stanza, Spencer describes the first eleven rivers in fairly naturalistic terms, retaining their geographical characteristics, the spacious sheenan spreading like a sea, or economic potential, the fishy fruitful ban. 
Phrases like the liffy rolling and strong aloe tumbling are conventional anthropomorphisms as opposed to strict personifications. Perhaps then these rivers are denied the wholesale human embodiment afforded to the bridal families. Yet Spencer insists on their essential similarity in kind and in fame to English rivers, repeating the word likewise in consecutive lines, both of which force their points with alliteration itself a figure of similarity, so likewise in love and solemn to see. The lines themselves are yoked together with the mid-stanza couplet rhyme. Spencer's writing of Irish rivers and the pageant in general moves fluidly between wholesale embodiments and dispersonified descriptions. Yet taking him at his word for this preliminary image, we are to imagine these rivers transformed into bodies. How else could they experience love and joy in what they see? One, co- one consequence of the poetic recasting of rivers as bodies is the neighbourhood achieved. Again, the English rivers serve as a comparison. The Thames is attended duly by six pages who are his tributaries. These are immediately followed by his neighbour floods, the unconnected other rivers of England. By these rivers too, in their personified form, the Thames is attended. Personification endows rivers with unpredictable mobility. The Severn and the Humber, remote rivers in the west and north of England, are as proximal to and intimate with the Thames, as are his tributaries. As rivers, the Liffey and company do not touch the Thames. As bodies, they travel as guests to the wedding. Among the Irish rivers catalogued are the three known now as the Three Sisters, the Gentle Shure, the Stubborn Newer, and the Goodly Barrow, imagined by Spencer as three sons of the giant Blomius. They are able to join in one, as they do in geographical reality, at Waterford Harbour. Yet personification enables all the Irish rivers listed to join in one, with each other and with the rivers of England. Geographical relations of contiguity are replaced via personification with relations of similarity, a fictive kinship which prompts movement across the islands. The normal cyclical motion of rivers is exchanged for the mobility of persons. The flow that personification arrests might be the terrifying one of a powerful wild river. In Spencer's colonial dialogue, A View of the Present State of Ireland, 1596, Irish rebellion is described several times with metaphors of river flow. The typical native Irishman does not rebel of his own accord, quote, but is of force drawn by the grand rebels into their action, and carried away with the violence of the stream. Such violent flow, whether literal or figurative, is what personification halts. Modern critical treatments of Spencer's list of Irish rivers tend to read it ironically, emphasising its allusions to the violence of the recent past. Of the rhetorical question considered above, as to why Irish rivers should not pay tribute to the Thames, Richard McCabe alleges that, quote, the pageant itself supplies a series of possible answers, and argues that under the poetic veneer of the pageant, quote, lurk the colonial anxieties of the planter. The catalogue certainly opens and closes on notes of uncertainty. After posing the rhetorical question considered just now, Spencer declares that he cannot recount all the Irish rivers, nor read the salvage countries through which they pace, the last of the 18 rivers described is the Baleful Ur, Spencer's name for the Arvenbeg, quote, late stained with English blood. 
This staining refers to the Irish defeat of Lord Deputy Arthur Gray's forces at the Battle of Glenmalure in 1580. Bart Van Es, who shows Spencer's debt in this passage to the new genre of choreography, reads such ominous allusions back into Spencer's refusal to describe the Irish landscape between the rivers. He makes the sharp point that Ireland's conflicted recent past is uncomfortably conspicuous in in works such as Camden's Britannia because it fills a gap left by the absence of myths or histories known to English antiquarians or their classical authorities. Given this prominence of conflict in choreography and living memory, argues Van Ayres, quote, the more knowing Elizabethan reader of the list of Irish rivers would surely pause to question why these streams had, in reality, proved so reluctant to pay tribute to the Thames. If Book Four of the Fairy Queen is read as a choreography of Ireland and a history of its recent past, albeit a skewed and sanitised one, then Van Ayres is surely right. Yet perhaps the river pageant is a literary fantasy of the future, a fiction of union in which the memory of Glenmalure is ceasing, as it might already have been in 1596 with its fresh conflicts, to be late. I would argue that the more we imagine the rivers as embodied personifications, the less the text reads like an allegory of recent history, and more like a fiction of an imagined, idealised future. The river pageant does not so much allude to recent violence, as finesse it away. As Joan Fitzpatrick puts it, quote, Spencer envisages a peaceful celebration which includes Ireland's waterways, but from which Ireland itself is excluded. Personification enables this strange liberation of Ireland's waterways from Ireland itself. Spencer's representation of Ireland's rivers is more harmonious and sanitised, I have been arguing, than recent criticism suggests. This is not to say that the pageant exempts itself from the ideological project of English imperialism. On the contrary, it is deeply implicated in imperial and colonial work. The Irish antiquarian Patrick Weston Joyce first noticed that Spencer's rivers come in geographical order. From the Boyne, for example, the catalogue proceeds northwest. This represents the first attempt in English verse to describe Ireland's topography with a spatial logic albeit an impressionistic and sometimes inaccurate one. We ought, therefore, to consider it in the general context of early modern England's mapping of Ireland. From the middle of the 16th century until its end, maps enjoyed an explosion of popularity in English publishing. Before 1555, no map had been printed in England. In 1590, Saxton's county maps from 1579 appeared on the backs of playing cards. Yet mapping of Ireland was generally, for government purposes, carried out under the auspices of the state for military and political ends. Many maps or plots of Ireland during Elizabeth's rule show evidence of examination or possession by Lord Burley. Most of these depict a certain part of the island, a province or a town, often the location of recent skirmishes or sieges. Around the turn of the 17th century, maps of Ireland in its entirety such as Baptista Boazio's in 1598, or John Norden's in around 1608, became more common as the area of military crisis expanded to cover the whole island. Spencer's catalogue of rivers seeks at the same time to parse Ireland and to conceive of it as a whole. On the one hand, only 18 of hundreds of rivers are present. On the other, the attempt to order them geographically suggests a panoramic survey of the whole kingdom. 
In generic terms, the catalogue draws a pointed contrast with the portrayal of Ireland in contemporary cartography. Whereas government maps depict a contested place with a military focus and for a private audience, Spencer's self-avowedly laureate verse seeks to make Ireland poetic and, quote, famous to a reading public. In the 1590s, these mutually exclusive ways of accounting for Ireland spatially, cartographically or with poetic figures, showed signs of moving together. Around 1590, human figures begin to appear on maps published in England, such as Jodicus Hondius's Tippus Angliae from 1590, which is here. So we have figures in the, in the corners, which are uh, figures of people living, living there. However, English maps do not feature personified rivers until William Hull's engravings for Drayton's Polyolbion, a text that itself stays within the confines of England and Wales. And here is one of the illustrations from Polyolbion, and you can see uh, the river personifications are figures literally emerging from the river, and they also interestingly interact with other kinds of personified figures and non-personified figures. Spencer's mapping of Ireland in poetic terms rather than those of contemporary cartography participates in the project of the numerous choreographies published towards the end of the century. Even here, there is a difference, the melancholy difficulty of which William Harrison complains in his description of England for Holinshed's Chronicles that there are simply too many rivers for one man to name does not afflict a poet whose creation of idealised fictions is inherently selective. In treating England, the work of Holinshed's Chronicles and Camden's Britannia, 1586, as well as partial choreographies such as Lambert's Perambulation of Kent, 1576, is both to organise the native country and to deepen collective self-consciousness. When such works turn to Ireland, I would argue, their project changes. Ireland, an imperial subject that needs to be fully colonised, is by analogy an unknown that needs to be known. As Van Ez argues, ignorance of Irish local history might force antiquarian writers to highlight the violent conflict of the recent past. Another way to fill the gap of Ireland was with the testimony of classical geographers, especially Ptolemy. In the description of Ireland which concludes his Britannia, Camden addresses the river in Kerry, now, now known as the Lee. This is, strictly speaking, Philemon, uh, Philemon Holland's translation. But, uh, and he says, A little river now nameless which the situation in some sort implieth to be Dur in Ptolemy, cutteth through the midst of this, running by Tralee, a small town, laid now in manner desolate. In the absence of a known history, the river is endowed only with the best fit from Ptolemy's map. However, this reinscription of Ireland with classical names is enabled, in dialectic fashion, by the erasure of its own history, both Gaelic and Anglo-Norman. The map of the British Isles by William Hull, which was used as the frontispiece for the 1607 edition of the Britannia, features the east coast of Ireland, bereft of all names except Dublin's, but with its rivers preserved. The English imperial fiction of Ireland as a nameless terrain permits its renaming in English. Spencer's names for the rivers he mentions often arise from spurious conjectured etymologies, the baleful Ur is really the Avonbeg. The syllable Mal, uh, sorry, at Glen, at Glen Malur, the syllable Mal, read as the Latin stem meaning bad, as if the river's name anticipates the battle it would witness in 1580. 
As McCabe argues, quote, colonial cartography erases the Irish River's proper names, their names in Irish, even when, as here, it purports to translate them. Spencer's depiction of Ireland is determinedly poetic and fantastical, perhaps more so than critics have implied. Yet this poeticizing of place, erasing as it does the place's native history, is doing colonial work. How might personification itself also participate in the colonial project? There are several ways. Postcolonial theory has elaborated in detail the various strategies by which a colonial power others its subject, yet there is surprisingly little investigation of colonial personifications. Richard Helgeson's classic analysis of Saxton's English county maps in terms of nationhood argues that by displacing the person of the monarch from the land, Saxton endows England with a voice of its own. One recent study of the political deployment of personification for attitude formation notes the, repre- re- the representation, quote, of collectives as monolithic actors characterised by malevolent intent as a classic othering strategy. Spencer's pageant does something more unusual. Ireland's continuous land is personified as a collective of separate individuals. His writing of Ireland both in The Fairy Queen and The View insists simultaneously on its political unity with the Kingdom of England and on the rigid separation of English from Irish culture. Perhaps personification is an expression of this simultaneous unity and difference. Afforded human mobility, the rivers can be in one place, yet personification ensures that they retain discrete forms even as they merge. That the pageant's personified rivers are followed by a procession of Ovidian river nymphs overwrites Ireland's rivers with the classical tradition of the river god, further erasing its own history. The division of Ireland into parts also arguably obscures and degrades the whole, In Book 5 of The Fairy Queen, the figure Irina, Spencer's personification of Ireland, is an imprisoned woman. The river personifications of Book 4, however, are gendered male, as they are in most sculptural and pictorial representations in the Italian and later European Renaissance. Ireland becomes a set of energetic young men, pages at a wedding, who in the absence of a leader seem to require rule from elsewhere. Most pertinently, I think, personification widens the separation of Ireland's land from Ireland. As we have seen, the reinscription of classical names onto Ireland in antiquarian writing strips the island of its own history. Similarly, personification displaces Ireland's people from its land by substituting for them its own fashioned figures. Here again, the poetic portrayals of England and Ireland diverge. Surveying the Tame before its marriage with the Isis at Oxford, Spencer turns the university city into an ancient heavy burden that the personified river carries on his bowered back. Personification enables a convergence of nature and the culture it supports. Yet Oxford remains populated by its scholars, the many learned imps that shoot abroad and with their branches spread all Brittany. The catalogue of Irish rivers mentions several Irish towns. The Clonmel, for example, quote, adorns rich Waterford and the Lee encloseth Cork, but their inhabitants are conspicuously absent. Spencer's fictional figures cover the rigorous exclusion from his pageant of Irish people. The Irish are cast, as Andrew Hadfield puts it, quote, in the role of the intractable otherness which must be removed, of vices which must be silenced for unity with England to be achieved. Spencer's pageant achieves that unity at a cost whose signs are finessed away by the text, more than they are alluded to. 
The process Helgeson brilliantly identifies is almost exactly reversed. Fictional persons are grafted onto a foreign landscape in order to mute that landscape's real people. It is an example of Spencer's continuous attempt to keep the Irish people separated from the land they inhabit. Throughout the view, the figure of Irenaeus insists that the native Irish practices of nomadic farming using bullies and lack of crop farming is explained not by the suitability of the landscape of Western and Northern Ireland, but their racial character as a people. The Irish river spirits he invents are intertwined with their landscape, being embodiments of it. But this is an intimate relationship he is determined to deny to the Irish. Simon Armitage's recent collection, The Unaccompanied, 2017, includes a poem called The Making of the English Landscape, which ends with a haunting image of England at dusk as seen from a satellite. Its rivers cascading beyond its coast, the land like a shipwreck's carcass raised on a sea crane's hook, nothing but keel, beams, spars, down to its bare bones. And I have an image, not of England, but of Wales as just its rivers, which I think is quite, quite a haunting image there. Uh, as in William Hull's map for the Britannia, a country's rivers are counted among its essentials, its origins. 16th century English cartography of Ireland represented the country as something like a shipwreck's carcass, a site of military contest that could and should not be enchanted. Spencer's personification of 18 Irish rivers attempts to transcend this narrow cartographic focus with a contrastingly poetic spatial rendering of Ireland. The pageant is not so much an allusion to a current or recent state of Irish affairs as a fantasy of a future union. Yet, in insidious ways, as I hope to have shown, this apparent poeticizing and reinscription of Ireland by an English poet and colonist also strips the contested country down to its mute rivers, its bare bones. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.